Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I want to hearken back to some things that we've been, uh, maybe I shouldn't say we, I have been wrestling with. Uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time setting it back up, but I do want to say to you uh, that I am, um, and, I, and I say, I'm going to say this as non-spiritually as I can, because I don't want to come across speaking on, beha- speaking on God's behalf uh, here, but I have a sense, a strong sense, even a conviction, that God has incredible things in store for us as individuals, but but as a church collective, uh, I I am I am certain, and I don't have a I, I don't think that we're allowed to see exactly what that is yet, but I know that God, while God is using us, He is about to use us in a different direction, not opposition but but in a in a in a community way uh i I don't i don't really want to get into all of it right now but i i sense that god wants to do something among us that we are not ready for yet how's that that's that's how i will say that god has something in store for us that we are not ready for yet and I feel like he is calling us to preparation for that thing or those things. Uh, and one of the things that I have just really felt uh, impressed is, to, uh, is to, to be able to be honest with ourselves. And if we can't be honest with ourselves, then, uh, then I'm afraid we're just going to be content wearing masks. And, and while we are looking in the mirror, sometimes that, that hurts and it causes us to reflect upon our past and all the things that bring us to this moment. And, and so many of you have shared things with me over the last few weeks or months that, that the Holy Spirit is bringing into your mind that you're finally able to, to deal with and to find freedom in. And I think about what Paul said, and you don't have to turn there, hopefully you have it memorized by now, but to, to Pastor Timothy uh, in early in early in ministry, as, pa- as Timothy is pastoring the church uh, there in, in Ephesus, and he, he tells Timothy the purpose of his letter and really the purpose of the gospel and his mentorship over this young pastor is the aim of my charge is is this is love, and so what is the point? The point is love that issues or flows out of a a pure heart. A heart that has been purified by our yes to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, it, and when your heart is free, then you can look back into your past and you can begin to deal with things and, and you can drive those experiences and you can drive the abuses and you can drive the fears and the anxieties and all of those things. You can drive those things into the Holy Spirit and you can find forgiveness and you can find freedom and you can let down all of the baggage that we compartmentalize in our life. And, you know, the longer you live for Christ, the just the better you are at, at juggling things. And, and I don't think God wants us to juggle. I think he wants to set us free in Christ. And you can't do that unless you realize a pure heart, a good conscience, a conscience that's, that's not attached to all sorts of heartache and brokenness and pain. And it leads to everything that paralyzes our faith and a sincere faith. So the aim of my charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That is the essence of what we are to do. Now, I wish that our faith, or maybe I don't, but uh, I wish that our faith were as simple as pray a prayer, check a box, and wait it out. But it's not that simple. If you could just check a box and then day after day, God just gives you little tools here and there, just making your life better and more manageable, that would be wonderful. But the bulk of the New Testament is, is our commands that help us understand how to live for the Christ that we have claimed. Once you say yes, now it's hard work. Now it's effort. Now it's exercising ourselves unto godliness. There are... There are securities that come to the believer. 
our salvation, our hope, our eternity. These are securities that we have in God, but there is a lot of free will left to live after we say yes to those securities. And so when Paul says that if you're going to love the way that Jesus loves, that's got to come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And the bulk of the New Testament is helping us to, to, to place the, the, those, those things in ourselves. So I would like for you to join me in the book of Hebrews this morning, chapter, chapter 12. And, and I'm going to begin looking at verse 14. And I want you to think of the uh, conscience. And the scripture has a lot to say about conscience. And yes, our, our faith is about soul and spirit and relationship with God. But, but there's also a lot to be said about the inner workings of who we are by nature. And, and not just, you know, now that I'm in Christ, I am something new. But not only does God make us something new, he takes what we were and, and makes that new. And so a lot of it is dealing with who we were so that we can become who he has called us to be. So just because you become a Christian, it doesn't do away with all of the baggage that you carry. And, and certainly Christianity is not about teaching us how to carry our baggage more efficiently. It can't be that. And I'm afraid that's what we've turned it into. So you think about the conscience as a kind of a window to the soul. And, and you know, uh, and you may not, but as a window gets smudgy, when it gets dirt thrown onto it, light coming through it is hampered. And so in the very same way, when there are smudges and there are blemishes and there is dirt on our conscience, it's really difficult for the light to kind of shine through. And there are reasons why people live with a very restless conscience. And there, even in psychology today, there are so many answers about uh, overactive conscience and people who's, who their conscience just won't shut down and they can't tell the guilt and the shame no and they can't call, you know, lies a lie and, and it just drives people in, into a place uh, that is not the identity of Christ. And so one reason that we have a restless conscience is anxiety and there's plenty of things to be anxious about. But what did Jesus say about anxiety? He said, be anxious for nothing. And yet, somewhere or another, we have, we've allowed anxiety to be something that we're comfortable with. And, and as long as we can acknowledge it, well, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm really anxious right now. Have somebody to talk to about it. And we just pacify our anxiety rather than dealing with it. And there are times that we're anxious. And there are times that we learn. But living in a state of anxiety or accommodating anxiety in your life is not what Christ has called us to. You can work through it, but you can't live in it. It's not who we're called to be. Another is because of guilt. And as you know, several weeks ago, we dealt specifically with guilt as it, re, uh, as it re, relates to our relationship with, with God. But there's another reason for guilt. And there's another reason, and it's a major issue, uh, guilt and anxiety, and that is bitterness. And I do not believe that it is possible to have a clear conscience, a good conscience that's free of offense unless we deal with bitterness that lurks in our hearts. If we have bitterness in our hearts, it will affect your conscience. And if it is bitterness in our hearts, then it's because our hearts are not pure. And so we can, we, can, we can talk about the circumstance and we can deal with the offense and we can, even, we can accommodate it, we can justify it. But at the end of the day, and I want to be very clear about this, we're going to really boil all this down because I don't have a lot of time. But bitterness is just sin. It's just sin that harbors in our life. So... Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. And I want you to, really, we're going to tear, tear some of it apart, but I want you to listen very closely because the Holy Spirit may say some things to you uh, that is not my intention. And I want you to be able to hear him this morning uh, because it is a lot. Verse 14 and 15. Strive for peace with whom? With everyone. 
Do you think that the writer of Hebrews has in mind only other Christians? Do you think that the writer of Hebrews only has your family members in mind here? Or the people that you already have great relationships with, people you agree with? Who, who do you think the writer of Hebrews has in mind here? And strive for peace with everyone and, and in the original it goes back to the word strive, and strive for holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness. And he goes further, without which peace with everyone and holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do we need to break that down? I don't think we do. Without peace with everyone and holiness, no one will see the, world, the Lord. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And the writer goes on to say, specifically, let me break this down for you. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What do I mean by that? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Because the trouble is not going to be isolated to the incident. It is going to defile many. Now there's two things that I want to bring up very quickly. First of all, bitterness has roots. Deep roots. And we're going to be just barely agricultural this morning. But one of the things that I learned growing up, I remember, uh, and boy, I hope he's not watching today. But I, my, I learned how to work hard for my dad. Hard. And I remember in the summer, I would be sleeping. My dad would get, my dad was the hardest working person I've ever known. And he would get up before dark and he would come in and he would wake me up and he would give me the list of things that had better be done before he gets home. And I learned how to work. And we, I lived in, Appala in uh, northeastern Kentucky. And uh, we had a driveway. Part of it was, was, uh, was paved and most of it was not. And there is no way in this world that my dad could possibly have cared if there were weeds in the gravel driveway. That had to be because I needed something to do. Because that does not make sense to me. So when I get home, and I'm telling you, it was a large driveway. When I get home, there better not be one weed in this driveway. I learned a little bit about weeds. I learned that weeds don't belong in flower beds. My mom taught me that. Here, here's how, you, I know you think that I'm OCD, and sometimes I say that, and people are like, yeah, everybody says that. No, no, no. My mom didn't use a weed eater. She used scissors. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I remember my mom on her knees going down the sidewalk with scissors trimming beside, because the weed eater blows grass clippings into the flowers. No, sir. So, what happens, what happens if there is a weed? And you're like, oh, I can see where all of his, yeah, it makes sense now, doesn't it? Uh, but you know what happens if you take a weed and you just cut the weed off at the top? If you just cut off the part that you can see? Boy, some of you had uh, learned how to work when you were younger. You can't just cut them off at the top. You have to break it loose. Believe me, I know. You break it loose. You try to get down there as far as you can, and if you don't pull the root up, you're just going to be out there again. If you don't get the root, you're going to be back. you got to get the root. The other thing is that it spreads. So whatever you allow to live today, it's going to make your job a lot harder tomorrow because it spreads, right? It spreads. And by the time you see, and this is, this is going to be a long illustration, okay? But by the time you see it manifest, it's already been growing for quite a while underneath. And it takes, it takes you know, it takes over the underground, you know, the part you can't see. Eventually, what is underneath, now I want you to listen to the metaphor, what is underneath is going to come to the top. And it's going to starve out the nutrients 
that could feed the roots that you really want to grow or not grow. It, it, it draws the life off of other things that could produce, the things that you want to produce. The fruit is in the root. And sometimes you can allow weeds to grow and they're going to take over. In fact, you know this, weeds are in essence going back to nature. And so if you're going to have a, and most people don't care, I get it. But if you're going to have a weedless yard, you have to be incredibly diligent. And so by the time the weed is manifested, you know, the intended growth is already negatively impacted and probably even starved out. Let me give you a case in point. I, I remember uh, when we first moved to our house here, uh, our yard was pretty much like carpet. It was great. I'll, you could get out there and walk. So, and there, were, there were people, they're not in our church anymore, but there were people who would always come over and they would take their, when, you know, that long good southern goodbye when you say goodbye inside the house and you stand outside for another 30 minutes saying goodbye. They would take their shoes off just to stand in the yard to talk because it's just like in carpet, right? Well, you know, I'm not as diligent as I probably should have been with that beautiful grass. And so over time, my grass is green and I, and I love my yard, but I actually got one of those companies to come uh, because I had, a, I had a tree problem, and it, 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 it caused some, some grass problems. And so uh, I, w I, wanted to get it, I wanted to get it fixed. And so I started paying these folks to come and spray my yard, and they started getting rid of the weeds. Guess what happened? I thought I had some grass in my front yard. It has just about all become weeds. And so then, I guess what? I had to go get some uh, some, uh, what's it called? Sod. And I had to resod my whole front yard because I had lost just about all my grass. Now, if you were driving by my yard, it still looked soft and it still looked pretty and it still looked green, but it was weeds and they had taken over. And one form of weed had actually drawn all the nutrients from the good grass. What am I talking about? Well, There is no growth by intention, right? What, I'm, what, what do I mean by that? I mean that you can intend for your yard to do something all day long, but if you're not intentional about weeds, it will take over and you don't even know it. Such is the case of the weed of bitterness, it lies just under the surface of your life, but it is drawing all the nutrients away from the life that God wants you to, to live. And you can mask it, and you can hide it, and you can cut it, and it can be the same color, and you can do all of those things, but it's not producing. It's not producing the life that it was intended to produce. If bitterness is unattended, it will cause death. Even if it's dismissed for a season, it will wreck health. A good conscience and roots of bitterness cannot grow in the same garden. One will always take over the other. So I want to remind you of a very basic truth. Whatever you don't forgive, whatever you refuse to lay down, you will pass on. It will always give birth to another generation, and it will grow. That's why children that are brought up in homes where there's been a poverty mindset or abuse of one kind or another, it spreads to the next generation. And you can identify it, and you can know it, but it still spreads if it's not dealt with. And whatever you don't lay down and forgive, you're always going to pass on from season to season. And whatever you don't bring to the cross and whatever you don't give to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it will pass on to the next generation, even if you don't think that you're passing it on. And the root of bitterness requires very little soil, very little cultivation. You don't have to go out and fertilize weeds or roots of bitterness. And by the way, if you go out there and you look at like dandelions, how long does it take a dandelion to produce fruit? I'm you, go, you go to bed at night and you get up in the morning and it's boop, there it is. 
Don't take very long to grow. It grows quick. It's tough to remove. Sometimes it blends in so easy. It may feel in for some other missing growth. And you can fake people out for quite a while. And you can make bitterness look like something else for a little while. But it will be found out eventually because that's the nature of roots of bitterness. Of all human emotions, bitterness is the one that ought to be feared the most. As I've been, as I've been learning more and more about this, I have found that uh, bitterness is a cruel cancer that devours you from the inside out. And, and the thing about like, bitterness is you can actually deal with, you can identify what it is. And that's what a lot of people just identify where your bitterness is coming from. And you can do some talk, you know, counsel or therapies or whatever, and just identify. But, the, but here's the deal. And, and I, I want to be very cautious about saying this. But the only cure to roots of bitterness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only cure. You can identify it and you can, you can mark it. But the only way to cure that root of bitterness is the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's what the Holy Spirit says through the book of Hebrews. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness, the word bitterness comes from an old root word, and it means, it's complicated, but it means to bite. Really, it's hard. Right? Bitter, bite. Do you see? It's not a big stretch. You can remember that. This is very descriptive. Bitterness is like being bit, perhaps, by the old serpent himself. And it releases venom and poison into our hearts and our life. And it begins to, to kill off certain parts of our identity in Christ, and it leaves them useless and paralyzed. I'll take you over to Genesis chapter 4 for just a moment. I want, I want you to see it in action. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to read just a couple of verses, but I want you to see it in its, in its primal form. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Now, when you get over into the New Testament, you will see when those two things come together, anger and a sullen face or a fallen face, it's the word bitterness. So why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, at the door. And its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it, is what the Lord told Cain. Your, your anger and your sullenness can be forgiven by God. Your root of bitterness is forgivable. That's great news. Whatever it is, it, you can go back and identify the circumstance you, that, that you have justified your bitterness, but you don't know what was done to me. You're right, I don't know. But if it has led to bitterness, bitterness is not a result of your circumstance. It is a result of your way of dealing with your circumstance. You are not justified to live in bitterness regardless of the offense because bitterness isn't about the circumstance. It's about sin that you're harboring in your life. And it will give birth to more defilement. In this case, it murdered his brother. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. The Latin Vulgate, which is a very early translation of this, actually says Cain spoke to his brother and said, hey, let's go to the field together. Premeditative murder. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You remember what Peter said to Simon the magician? This is in, uh, in Acts chapter 8. Simon the magician, he's doing all of these like 
manifestations, and they're demonic. And, and he sees the apostles, uh, Philip, uh, I believe it was, uh, praying over some of these new Christians, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit, and there's manifestations of the Spirit. And Simon, the unsaved magician, sees this, and he's just like mesmerized. And he's like, man, I don't want that. And so he believes in the Lord and is radically changed. And so word gets back to Jerusalem to the other apostles, and they say, you know, uh, what's going on, Simon the Magician? I mean, this guy's world-renowned. Uh, study Jesus, don't study Simon the Magician. But you go back to, to everybody knew Simon the Magician. He is, he is world-renowned. And he's given his life to Jesus, and so the other apostles are like, Peter, Peter, you and John go up there and you find out what's going on. So they did and they went up there and, and these people are receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon the magician says, hey, give me, I want that, I want that kind of magic. I want to be able to give people the Holy Spirit too. Peter gets in his face. He's like, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know if you, I'm Peter, I love Peter. He, he, he gets it. But he, he's like challenging Simon the magician with, this isn't something you can just give away. But here's what he says, because it is obvious that Simon the magician gets his feelings hurt just a little bit because the apostles are able to do some things that he couldn't do. Here's what, here's what Peter said to Simon in verse 23 of Acts 8. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The word gall means bile. Or bitter. It's bitter poison. You know, bile is the accumulation of toxins in your body that's seeking to release. Bitterness is like drinking toxins, or in this case, bitterness is the poison that comes when you're bitten by certain things in life. When you don't get your way, when somebody says no, it's as if a Satan has bitten and injected all the poison of hell itself into the human heart. And, and while it begins with, with simple things, it begins with hurt. It begins with a, a, a reimagining of a situation. But when bitterness turns inward, it becomes jealousy, envy, critical. It turned outward, it becomes anger. Inward, it becomes fear. It promises to protect itself, but it only creates a comparison and it creates division. It doesn't seem like much, but man, it's a killer to the conscience. You cannot walk around with that and a good conscience. Bitterness is secluded sullenness, secured in the soul. It's that feeling defendable, hurt, resentment, anger, hate, even revenge. And I know if I were to ask you, we most of us would say, I mean, I don't really want to kill anybody. I mean, we might say that and laugh a little. I don't really want to kill anybody. I mean, right? <laughs> You're not laughing. I thought that would be a little funny, but I mean, nobody wants to kill somebody. And, you, and, and there's probably even days that can go by when you don't consult your bitterness. But I think most of us are holding on to some things that every now and then when you feel just a little bit empowered, you feel like you get just a little bit of creativity, you get just a spark of ministry, and then you start like, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to. Bitterness is, you get bitter for essentially one of three reasons. Because of what is said about us, what is done to us, and what has been taken from us. Those are the three sources, primary sources of bitterness. What is said about us, what is done to us, or what is taken from us. And, and as I, again, working through this, this, these are the very things that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount. You look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, what is said about us? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see that? You say, well, that on, on, on his account, and, and that may be true, but when you are trying to make your 
identity in Christ, people may say things about you. People may hurt you. People may say things about you that are not true, or they may say things about you that is true to them, but it's not the whole story. And if you're not careful, you'll internalize that. And Jesus said, don't internalize it. Rejoice and be glad, because now you know what it feels like when they spoke evil against me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. What about what is done to us? Jesus responds to that. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What's Jesus saying here? It's not what happens to you that's important. It's how you respond to what happens to you that really counts with God. What about what's taken from us? Matthew chapter 5 verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, Jesus seems to imply here that it's so much better to be wronged than it is to be the one who is doing wrong. And when someone does you wrong, and they will. People are going to take things from you. They're going to say things about you. And it's going to hurt. Jesus has prepared us for this. You have one of two choices. You can get bitter or you can get better. I want to use the, an, another illustration. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll draw in for the close. Uh, it's not really an obscure story. <clears throat> but there's a part of it that kind of is not... Uh, chronological, and that is the life of an Old Testament person named Ahithophel. So turn over to Second Samuel chapter. Well, I don't really know where to tell you to turn uh, because it's it's told throughout Second Samuel. But uh, I, th- I think it's on the screen behind me, uh, so you can you can look there. But Second Samuel chapter fifteen verse twelve it says, "And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Galanite, David's counselor." Is that behind me? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. David's counselor. So we know that the man Ahithophel is David's what? Counselors, very important. And so while he spoke and, and others sat and listened. In fact, there's a verse that says that when Ahithophel spoke, it was like people were hearing from God himself. But something happened in Ahithophel's life that left a great hurt and it opened him up. And he met a very tragic end because he allowed a hurt to flourish in his life. Now, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Galanite. Okay, so Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel is the dad, is Eliam's dad. Eliam is his son. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. It says, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Very interesting to see the genealogy here, okay? So here's what is happening. Bathsheba was Eliam's daughter, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather and is David's counselor, okay? Just a real quick biography there. And how proud grandfather must be of his granddaughter, beautiful Bathsheba, who married very well one of David's mighty men. How it must have grieved him when he heard that the man who asked for his granddaughter's hand had been tragically left to die on the battlefield in a very, very tragic, tragic way. Can you see him standing by her side, his arm around her, standing at the grave of Uriah, the mighty man, her husband? But in only a couple of days, news breaks that 
Bathsheba is pregnant because of David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Who do you think Ahithophel blames for his granddaughter's embarrassment? David. And it was David who has seduced her. It was David who summoned her into the palace. It was David who plotted and planned Uriah's death. It was David who had brought this scar upon my family. And I am his counselor. And so when David's son, as a result of the kingdom just spiraling, when Absalom rebelled against his father, Ahithophel saw his chance to get even. And his bitterness had turned to anger. And his anger had turned to hatred. And out of his hatred for David, Ahithophel gave Absalom two words of counsel. And I'm going to read those in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Again, David is unaware of the bitterness of his counselor. And that his counselor has turned to his son, his enemy, Absalom. And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines who he has left to keep the house. And all of Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and Absalom. Second word of advice is in 2 Samuel chapter 17 verses 1 through 4. This is... I'll read it. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him when he was weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And notice this, all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes before her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. The first bit of advice was given to disgrace the king. The second was designed to destroy the king publicly. The man who had sat in counsel of the king is now seeking to hurt him. You begin to think everybody agrees with you. All the people, all the people. We're doing this for everybody. Sometimes we go through the sense of being betrayed and, and we wash our, our hands of them and sometimes we just brew. But neither lead to a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Sadly, I guess, sadly, I, I'm not sure how to interpret some of this. But that root of bitterness grew and grew and grew. And his advice wasn't heeded about going into war. And you know what Ahithophel does in 2 Samuel 17, 23, when he realizes that his, his advice wasn't taken? David wasn't going to die, and if David doesn't die, then I will not live. He goes back to his house and he hangs himself. It's going to affect joy in every area of your life. If you don't lay it down, it's just going to pass on. It's just going to grow. It's going to spread. It might look green. It might produce some things. But it's not going to be the identity of Christ. It's not going to be a pure heart. A sincere uh, faith comes from a good conscience. Hebrews, back to Hebrews 12. It says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. The word trouble you is the word vex. It means to push, it, it, uh, there are still good things going on. And rather than being able to appreciate those, you push those things out of your heart. And that begins to take over your life. So a bitter root always produces bitter fruit. 
And, and maybe as one of the last bits of encouragement, I, I would say, because I, I know, I know that roots of bitterness hold on to us. And so many, so many of us have things from our past that we just have not allowed the cross to speak into. But to whatever degree that you're holding on to bitterness, you cannot lay hold of Jesus. They are in direct proportion. Whatever you're holding on to that gives power to your bitterness can't take hold of the cross of Jesus Christ. It'll dominate you mentally. It'll create instability in your life. It'll destroy energy and any creativity. uh, And it will just depress you emotionally. Bitterness is a depressant, as you might imagine. And and you'll notice that there there are no bitter, happy people. (laughs) Criticism, cynicism, negative, and pessimism, all the isms. Maybe not all the isms, but a lot of isms. I know uh, in, in the Old Testament and, and in my life, you know, it debilitates you physically too. It just becomes, you become rigid and locked up when you begin to if, if have all of the other effects of bitterness in your life. Perhaps the most damaging is it destroys you, eventually it destroys you spiritually. It's in verse 15, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does it mean? It means that it's not the grace of God that fails. It's our refusal to lay hold of it, to obtain it. You see, grace forces us to think inwardly. That leads to humility, appreciation, claiming our identity in Jesus, forcing us to consider others. But bitterness forces us to think outwardly. It leads to comparison. It leads to pride and to competition. It forces us to only consider our standing. A bitter person, it's not about the circumstances. What, what the writer of Hebrews says is it's, it's a grace deficiency. Grace that can only be found at the cross. Bitterness affects worship. It affects our assurance. It, it, it affects our prayer life. It affects our f- fellowship with one another, and it defiles our witness. So what do you do? And some of you, I hope for all of us, that this is a warning about future bitterness because we all have our bitterness resolved. That's what I hope. But whatever it is that God has for us out here, It will be a root of bitterness that keeps us from it or allowing us to participate in it. And so if this is a warning about future bitterness, then so be it. We are, we know now. I can tell you this, uh, when your job is to pull weeds, when do you pull weeds? As soon as you see them, because that's when they're the softest, right? As soon as you see a weed, you're pull it because those little dinky ones pull right up but if you let it get very big anybody ever you ever hunted for ginseng anybody is that weird am i allowed to say that i, th- I think i'm allowed to say that ginseng ah oh, right yeah. it's not weird you guys should get, travel a little more but you go up into the woods hunting ginseng and you know you take a you take a spade shovel with you and a little pick with you and Man, that thing, you go, you go really, really deep. Sometimes things have festered for so long. Well, I wasn't going to tell this because I, I don't want to bore you with all my stories. But in my front yard, somebody planted ivy. Who in the world plants ivy? <sighs> Sorry, all you ivy lovers. I love it too at your house. <laughs> I don't love it in mine, so I have all this ivy. And it does kind of look pretty until you want to do something else. And you can't get rid of it. And so I tried, I tried a lot of things. I took that weed X, put on top of it, you know, laid it on top of it. I think it's like got fertilizer in it. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I ended up getting a blowtorch. <laughs> I have a brick house, but I got a blowtorch. And I, <laughs> trying to burn that stuff up over and over and over and over trying to burn this stuff up and I thought once I can get it burnt up enough I'll put more weed x down I'm going to put a bunch of gravel on it suffocate it and then as it gets little pop 
through it, because I know it's going to, but as it does it, now I can one at a time. Poof, every time I cut grass, poof, poof, poof. guess what? I think it's gone. I, I think. It's been several years. I've not pulled any in a while. But sometimes you have to take drastic measures to get rid of the root. And so for some, there may be some drastic things that you have to do. You may have to, you may have to address it differently than just a real quick, hey, pick it up, throw it away. But my encouragement is as we go forward, when there are things in your life, let's just make sure that we remember who we are in Jesus. And it's so much easier to pick it up before it. But there may be some of us who you're like your entire front yard, your facade is built on the rigidity of weeds. It's like you're quick to get angry at everything. Like everybody's out to get you. And it may take some drastic measures to rid yourself of those roots of bitterness. So, the writer of Hebrews says that we should pursue a life of fellowship. Verse 14, he says, follow or pursue or go after. The, the, the Greek is to go after in an aggressive fashion. Actively pursue peace. Make sure as much as it depends upon you to live at peace with all men. We are to be initiators of peace, making sure that we are at peace with one another. And we should promote a life of forgetfulness. Let me take you to one more passage and we'll be done. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. And, and one more, but it's the next one. It's verse 32. I just feel like I'm being disingenuous. But, but here it is Paul who says, let all bitterness, that's the, that's the top, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness is the root that produces these things. And if you're to put them away, dispose of them, discard them, get rid of them, keep very short lists. And when you hide yourself in the identity of Christ, boy, it's so much easier to keep short lists. I'm working on it. But you can cover it or you can bury it. But let me reiterate this. The grace of God is the only cure. There is no other cure. The grace that we find at the foot of the cross. Verse 32. It's, it's a continuation. You've got to read it in its context. So be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. It's almost like... You, you, you put off bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor with all malice. You put these off so that you can be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that's the key to forgive, to forgive, to be forgiving and forgivable. I mean, think about this. Not one of us has been treated as Jesus was treated headed to the cross. And at the worst moment of his treatment, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They didn't ask. They didn't ask to be forgiven. The things you're holding on, people don't have to ask to be forgiven. You, you're holding on to the bitterness. You can forgive without their knowledge too. It's like bitterness. If you think about bitterness being in a, in a, I don't know, a flask, uh, a something, what? A bottle, a bottle. It's in a bottle. And, and when you pour it out, it's not nearly as strong as it is when it's inside the bottle. It's so weird. It's more dangerous inside the bottle than it is when it's poured out. But we hold on to this bitterness and we pour it out a little bit. But I'm telling you, when you hold on to it, so much dangerous for the vessel that it's, that it's being held in. So I keep going back to this in, in, the, in the place that I am in my life right now. But it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. It's such, a, it's such a beautiful verse, but I think I've missed it a lot. But Paul said there to the church, he said, For I have decided to know nothing. And that's, that's got to be hyperbole because he teaches on a lot. But the comparison is to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Everything flows out of that. The power of the cross. It's not just a place where you can ask for forgiveness. It's not just a place where Jesus paid. It is the answer that unlocks every dilemma of our life, the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says this is the place that we should start with everything. I know, I, I choose, I've decided to know nothing among you that doesn't flow from Christ and Him crucified. Not just Christ and His morality, Christ and His teaching, Christ and His return, Christ and His kingdom, Christ and Him crucified, because that's what's going to unlock all of the damage that holds us back from a good conscience. Everything flows from the cross. <laughs> and in closing, I'm going to give you a quote. Charles Hayden Spurgeon said, So then let us go to Calvary so that we may learn to be forgiven. But let us linger there so that we may learn to forgive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have been forgiven much. I ask that this morning you would help us to and be and be gentle with your and generous with your mercy and your grace. But Lord, bring to our mind the areas of our life where we may be able to take our thoughts captive, take our emotions captive. We thank you, Lord, that we are saved. We thank you that we have the hope that one day we will be saved. But while we wait, Lord, here we sit and we're fragmented and we're fractured and, and we, we, we go through this life and, 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 and we're carrying a lot of things that, you know, things from our childhood, things from other relationships, things, things that have been said about us, done to us, things that we're carrying around. And we mask it just fine for the most part, but underneath the surface, Lord, it's drying us up. And we can only mask it for so long before it becomes obvious. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would remind us of the tools that we have in the Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit would teach us and reveal those areas of our life where we're hanging on to things that just don't belong to us. Belongs hung on the cross. So, Lord, in a lot of ways, how dare we? How dare I? So Lord, help us to be forgiven, recognize our forgiveness so that we can let go lest we continue to pass it on. We pray for the freedom that we have in Jesus. And I pray today we would lay hold of it. In his name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.